Welcome to the American Thoracic Society Women in Critical Care Medicine podcast. This is Dr. Dina Bates, an assistant clinical professor at the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at University of California, San Diego. I'm also a member of the Women in Critical Care Working Group of the Critical Care Assembly of ATS. We are joined today by two prominent women in critical care medicine. First, we have Dr. Janice Liebler. She is a professor of clinical medicine in the Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine Division of the University of Southern California, and she is also the medical director of the 40-bed medical ICU at L.A. County USC Medical Center. Thank you, Jan, for joining us today. Welcome. We also are joined by Dr. Abby Lara. She's an associate professor of medicine and fellowship program director in the Division of Pulmonary Sciences and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Colorado, Denver. And she's also the medical director of the Medical Surgical Progressive Care Unit at the University of Colorado Hospital. Thank you, Abby, so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. As the title of this podcast suggests, our focus for today will be to address certain topics that may be of particular interest to more junior women in critical care medicine. But we hope that women of all ages and ranks, and even many men, will find this information helpful. With that, I'm just going to get right into it. So I'm going to start at the beginning here and say for each of you, for trainees and junior faculty or, or junior clinicians that are looking to start or establish a career in critical care medicine, can each of you address, as a woman, what motivated your decision to start a career in academic medicine? And what advice would you have for younger women who are contemplating at this point, you know, at an early point in their career, which path is right for them? Jan, if you want to start first, please. Sure. I don't think I really understood what it meant to have a career in academic medicine when I made that first decision to look for a job after fellowship. But I was always um, intensely curious, uh, wanted to know how things worked, and was interested in figuring out how things could be made better. Um, I did have some concern about getting tired about what I perceived of doing the same thing day after day in practice, which of course is not true at all, but that's how I felt at the time. Wanted to be in a situation of working with other clinicians who were on the cutting edge, took the hardest cases and, you know, developed new treatments and, you know, kind of um, were pioneers. And at least that's how it looked to me when I started out. Uh, Oh, and I believe that I thought I could do a better job of running things than some other people I saw in charge. Um, And uh, unbelievable to me at the time now, but uh, that's what I thought at the time. And I thought that being in an academic position uh, might be the best way to do all that. So I started out, obviously, with some misconceptions, but um, that's uh, kind of how I ended up uh, stumbling on uh, an academic career. As far as what advice I would give to a young woman starting out and deciding what to do after fellowship, I think whatever path that you pick, you should have some idea as whether you want a job or a career. And that's a distinction that I think is useful in helping decide what direction you want to go. You certainly can have a career in private practice, but it would be a different kind of a career than in academic medicine. And regardless of whether the choice is practice or academia, someone who wants a career might make different decisions up front than someone who wants to do their excellent, rewarding job but has no desire to expand their work experience beyond that. And that's a perfectly, you know, good, um, rewarding uh, thing to do. Great. Thank you. Thank you for that, for that information. Abby, what about you? 
Yes. For me, um, it was the environment and the culture of academia that drew me initially. I was inspired by some phenomenal mentors, both clinical mentors and research mentors, uh, those individuals that I could identify with. There were two individuals during my training um, in internal medicine that really drew me to the practice of critical care um, and pulmonary sciences. I love the idea of being involved in an environment where there's the sharing of ideas, um, being involved in innovation, and being able to drive and move the field of medicine forward, and in particular, being involved in training development and career development. I was also attracted to the inherent flexibility in academia. Every single day presents itself with new challenges, new projects, new surprises, um, and achieving those successes is very meaningful to me. Um, I agree with Jan that Clinical practice um, in the private world, it can be as satisfying um, as academia. The advice that I would give to individuals and that I've provided to my trainees is that the individual really has to talk to a lot of people, not just your peers. You have to identify what your individual career goal is. And by identifying with people who, and seeking out advice from those around you, as well as those members who are more senior to you and know you well, you can determine if that um, a particular career path aligns best with your individual career goal. That's really good advice. I think um, maybe from personal experience and, and people that I know, I think that's a good point is sometimes we don't may, may not reach out to our resources enough and talk to enough people. So I think that that's really good when making a big decision like this. Thank you. So my next question, I'm, I'm going to uh, point at you, Jan. Uh, what advice would you give to a woman or anyone, really, who wants a career in academic medicine but may, may not think that uh, they want to pursue the traditional NIH pathway? Or, or really, maybe someone who might want those things may be interested in research but may not be at an institution that offers ready access to training grant or other, other forms of funding. Well, Today, there is really no one job description for someone in academic medicine. Um, the uh, different types of jobs are really all over the map, from something that's almost exclusively research to something that's almost exclusively clinical care and teaching. Although most people, when they think of academic medicine, envision a traditional tenure-track, NIH, grant-getting kind of position as the academic medicine model, in fact, that probably reflects a small minority of academic medical jobs for MDs. I personally am not in a tenure-track position, and none of the other uh, physician members of my division who have been hired in the past about 15 years or so are either. So we all uh, have an academic uh, career. We all uh, advance um, our uh, academic goals but uh, we are not in the traditional tenure-track kind of uh, situation. And I think that that's, um, in many institutions, that's uh, probably fairly typical. So that comes to the question then, if it's not just about NIH uh, grants and tenure, how is an academic job different from a job in private practice? I have a very mixed um, career. I uh, do clinical care. I do some research. I do some bench research. I do some clinical research, um, you know, and, and, you know, teaching and administration. And um, revealing is I have 
when I do some bench research, I have on occasion had some residents and fellows in the lab with me. And my bench where they work is right outside my office. So when they work at my bench, they get a close-up view of my comings and goings, my meetings, my lecture preps, my patient care rounds, my clinic, my research activities, and my struggle with all those various deadlines. And several of them expressed surprise that, that they saw what, for the first time, what goes on behind the scenes of an academic physician. They really only see us on rounds or giving lectures, and they really have no clue what else we do. And I have to say, I didn't either when I was in their position. So my own opinion is that in an academic position, someone that makes it you know, different than a practice kind of job is that it's that something you do contributes to the academic mission, which I would think most people broadly define as three pillars, research, all kind, teaching, clinical care, supporting research and teaching. And I would also include activities that support those things, such as administration, program development, and outreach. So I think that if you wanted to do any any kind of uh, range of those activities, you could probably find a job in academic medicine that would fit that mix and match model. But I do think that you should still pursue some sort of uh, scholarly activity somewhere along the, the way um, and really be cognizant of contributing to the academic mission, no matter what the general job description ends up being like. I think those are all interesting points that you make, and it's something that I've actually thought about recently myself. Just like you said, I think the trainees that see the attendings on rounds, that's that's the part that they see. That's what comes to the forefront, and that's what they think of with academic medicine. But really, the clinical time is not what makes the career almost. It's kind of like what you said. It's what you do outside of your clinical time. It's the administrative work, the teaching, the scholarly work, the um, the research that you do, anything else that supports those three pillars is what makes your career really. Um, and the clinical work, of course, is there, and it's very important. But when you advance your, your goals and your passions, it seems to me that it's more of what you're doing outside of, of the, the ICU, for example. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, I do. Number one, I always wanted to be a fabulous clinician. That was the, the track that I um, <laughs> wanted to go. Um, and these th- other areas uh, came to me much later, like asking more creative questions, like why do we do it this way? Is there a better way? Or why, what's the pathophysiology? Or you know, so starting out with for me, starting out from the clinical viewpoint was um, really important. So you know, th- these uh, things I think uh, do work together. Yeah, that's true. And actually, related to that. Abby, I have a question for you. I mean, as a looking up to both of you um, as a junior academician myself and trying to figure out where my path is going to go and how to um, divide my time and try to meet all these pillars, these three pillars, and, and, and do the scholarly work and do the research and do the teaching and the admin and the clinical time, um, I often find that I have trouble advocating for myself, um, trying to... Um, advocate and and allow myself to leave time to do certain activities that I want to do, and and I often feel torn in different directions. Um, Abby, for for other junior women, or even perhaps for all women who may feel the same way, how do you suggest that we get ourselves a seat at the table, so to speak? How can we be visible? How can our 
priorities and passions be visible and be heard? What's been useful for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. Being an advocate for yourself as a junior faculty member is one of the biggest challenges. I don't think that there's any one particular strategy that works best. And ironically, junior faculty, and in particular females, we are our own worst advocate. But ironically, we are the best advocate for others. And when you are in meetings, highlighting other individuals' uh, accomplishments, particularly your peers, can have such a unique and positive influence. And they will get the that um, recognition, um, and they will can serve that back to you. I often advocate for, um, or I would advise to advocate in teams. It's often easier to discuss an accomplish, accomplishment with your uh, with your a member of your peer group or your immediate mentor. And a mentor who is in your corner is um, is w- will be willing to advocate for you and highlight your accomplishments. And there is absolutely no harm in asking your mentor to be your voice as well, particularly if you aren't comfortable being able to advocate for yourself, or even better said, just being able to to uh, identify your accomplishments. Sometimes it feels as though it's bragging. You'll have to decide for yourself um, as you are engaged in teams um, and engaged in in projects, what is the most meaningful aspect of being on that team? Is Is it completing the project? Is it taking the win for the team, or is it truly leading that team? And so you'll have to define for yourself um, what your membership is in a project and where you feel most comfortable and best and best comfortable. I always advise my junior faculty, and I try in clinical uh, in clinical meetings and in other meetings to highlight and advocate for those that I feel as though have a difficult time identifying their own accomplishments and along the way providing them that mentorship and support that they feel more comfortable, um, particularly in large groups. Interesting. So it seems like for people that you're mentoring or people that your fellows or other junior faculty, you kind of you pay attention to who maybe is less able to uh, advocate for themselves and speak up and and you try to take an active role in advocating for that person for them, essentially. Yes, Even absolutely. if they haven't asked you to do it. Yeah, that's, that's being a good member of the team um, and being a good leader of the team. Well, it seems that both of you uh, have advocated well for yourself. Uh, you both uh, find yourself in, in really elite institutions here working in the division, your respective divisions and in your institutions in, in Denver and um, Los Angeles. Um, and you both hold, I think, multiple leadership positions um, in your respective institutions as well. What for each of you now, Abby and Jan, if you want to take turns, what's maybe one secret you'd try to to let us know that has helped you work your way up the ladder in, in what what I think or what many people think is a male-dominated environment, a male-dominated um, subspecialty? Well, I think for me, going through leadership courses has been and receiving leadership training has been critical to my success. It's allowed me to identify my own personality type. It's empowered me to be willing to um, put myself out there, so to speak. I no longer wait to be nominated for particular positions. Um, I no longer wait for someone else to identify my potential for a project or a group. 
I'm ready to throw in my hat into the ring. I've volunteered for projects and taken on responsibilities that I was passionate about and that I wanted to engage in, and I made sure that I completed them. But I also volunteered for those projects or meetings that were less than desirable, um, but did it for the benefit of the group. And I always made sure that I was prepared. So preparation is key. Get all the facts and the data before framing your argument or pitching your proposal. And always be ready to explain the why and the how of what you want to achieve. Okay, Jan. And and, uh, what about you? What strategies have been useful for you? I totally agree with what Abby said, that getting formal training in leadership or in um, an area that uh, you plan to work in in the future is incredibly helpful. Um, some people have described that as mentorship replacement therapy. It, you can get you know, the um, things that an, uh, even a good mentor would not be able to give you. I think um, those types of training programs teach you how to understand the game. And I think understanding the game is crucial. If you go into a meeting or you're you're in the middle of uh, some project and you don't really understand what the rules are, you'll get creamed. And I think that, and and you may not even understand what happened. So I think these types of training programs are fabulous for helping you understand that the rules of the games that you're um, involved in. Advancing in an academic environment can be tricky for um, anyone, men or or women, and uh, particularly for women who don't have the same kind of access to mentors, having these outside training experiences can be uh, very, very helpful. Um, For example, your own institution may um, have some leadership programs Uh, The American Thoracic Society offers a a variety of courses and mentoring opportunities in your early career group and other things. The Institute for Healthcare Improvement has some leadership training uh, programs that you might um, do. I actually participated in something that was run by the American Association of Medical Colleges, AAMC. At that time, it was called Senior Women in Medicine, and I took the course before I was a senior woman in medicine. Um, but it it opened my eyes to what the academic world, how it was structured, the things that are uh, required in order to get promoted, what things you would need to do if you wanted to go an administrative path. It was just fantastic. If you do want to go into the inner workings of academic instu- institutions and you want it to be something like a department chair or a dean or something like that in the future, there is a course called ELAM which has many, many successful uh, graduates who have gone on to big leadership positions across the country. So I can't say strongly enough, and I, you know, echoing what Abby said, is these programs can really be valuable. I'd also like to put in a plug for the women's luncheon at the ATS. They have had some incredible, articulate, talented women speak, and I've always learned something from their experiences of their careers when I've attended. Um, So I think that, you know, those uh, types of areas of how to advocate for uh, yourself and getting, learning the rules and learning what strategies, um, if you don't have somebody immediately available to uh, work with, um, those can be uh, very, very valuable. 
Thank you. I want to touch on two points that you just mentioned. Uh, first, the, the senior women in, in medicine course. I think it's uh, bold and creative of you to have signed up for that before you were, in fact, a senior. Uh, was that something that you came up with the idea to do on your own, or did someone advise you to do that? How did you get into that? I think most women would have just overlooked it and said, oh, that's not for me. I actually had met one of the AAMC people. They had given a, a little lecture or something at my university, and um, I asked them, you know, about career guidance or something. And they said, oh, we have this great course at Senior Women in Medicine. I said, I'm not a senior woman. They go, yeah, you're close enough. Why don't you sign up for it? So, um, <laughs> I, <laughs> so and it required, a, a the, the scariest part was it required a letter from my chairman of medicine to say that I had potential, which um, was was terrifying for me to approach him to say, uh, can you write this little letter that says that I, I have a, a future? Um, that was probably the easiest request he had all all day that didn't require him to co- spend any money or anything. But anyway, um, he did, and I was there. And uh, even though I wasn't quite ready for some of the discussions of what went on to be a department chair, it still was just eye-opening as far as how the academic world works. And I... Um, if you look in the AAMC uh, website, you can see if there's other suitable programs, um, but they are very, very interested in promoting women in leadership positions in ap- academic medical centers, and they do provide training uh, and ex- experiences and uh, mentoring um, and um, networking opportunities for that. That's wonderful. That's great information. That's a great resource. Thank you. And you also mentioned the women's luncheon at ATS. That is something that we have to pre-register for. Is that correct? When you do your registration for ATS, there's a little box that says, you know, that you know, if you're going. In years past, um, they haven't been too strict about uh, needing the uh, card, but I do think that the word has gotten out what a great experience it is. So they may require that the little piece of paper that says you registered, it costs nothing. It's part of your Perfect. registration for ATS. So all you have to do is check the box, and they'll, they'll have a little piece of paper. You can put it in the back of your badge, and then you can go in there and hear these incredible women talk about their experiences. Well, that's great and timely information as we have the 2017 ATS conference coming up shortly, May 19th to the 24th in Washington, D.C., For those of you that haven't registered yet, please sign up for the Women's Luncheon when you do your registration. I hope there's still room available. And this concludes the first of four installments of the ATS Women in Critical Care podcast. In the remaining segments, we're going to cover other key topics such as advocating for yourself without fear of bragging, time management, sexism at work, and burnout. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. I, of course, also want to thank you, Jan and Abby, for taking time out of your busy schedules to Come share your experiences and your words of wisdom with us. Uh, I certainly learned a lot today, and I'm looking forward to the rest of this conversation. I hope our listeners are too, and we hope uh, that our listeners will join us for the rest of this conversation to learn a little bit more from Abby and Jan in the near future. Thank you.